Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. So far, other than in our subscribers' episodes, we have solely focused on incarcerated men and women in the United States. Not only is it simply easier to speak with them, but also America with the highest incarceration rate in the world means there's no shortage of stories to look into. However, we are certainly not immune to issues right here in Australia. And that's exactly what we're going to take a look at in our next story. So regular listeners will know that I've stated on more than one occasion that interviewing inmates in my own country of Australia is very difficult. In order for me to get permission to interview a current Australian inmate, it would take a hell of a lot of red tape, letter writing and permissions to do so. Not to mention probably quite a lot of scrutiny when it came to the actual interview itself. It's just something that as a one-man band operation, I don't have time to do, unfortunately. Which is where we have another first for OMR. Because today, we're looking at the story of Henry Keogh. My name is Henry Keogh. I was charged and convicted uh, for murder, murder of my fiance. Um, I received a sentence of uh, life, the minimum non-parole period of 25 years. As you can probably tell, Henry is no longer incarcerated for the crime in which he was convicted of, and has been free since December of 2014. It's a crime he's always maintained he's completely innocent of. However, authorities have still never fully exonerated him of this crime, and although highly unlikely, could hypothetically take him back to court for this crime again at any time. But more on that very soon. 
I want to go right back to the very beginning. Whereabouts did you grow up? Well, I was born in Ireland, um, but we left there and moved to England only as a, only as a stepping stone to coming to Australia um, when I was about um, 15 months or so. Stayed there until I was 13, and, and then uh, we moved to Australia in 68. Yeah, wow. We've, we're almost similar there. I moved here when I was uh, 16 from England with my family. So what was the reason for your family wanting to come to Australia? Oh, Dad had always wanted to come to Australia. Um, his family had had um, a dairy farm, and uh, both he and his father had some sort of dream of uh, owning a, a big cattle station. But, of course, dreams and uh, realisations aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. So what was it like for you uh, being 13 and, and coming to a completely different country? I actually loved it. Um, I've, I've always been one that embraces change and uh, a challenge. I think it was probably the best thing that could have happened uh, for us in terms of, you know, sort of living standards and opportunities. And uh, and um, it was just the great outdoors and um, it lived right up to um, a lot of the promise. So Henry and his family of five leave London and head for Australia, making their way to Adelaide in the state of South Australia. Now, for our non-Aussie listeners, Adelaide is the fifth largest capital city in the country with a population of just 1.4 million people. Although it's a city, it actually feels, in my opinion, a bit more like a, a large country town. There's often jokes made that there's not a lot going on in Adelaide. Although I would beg to differ, as it's a place I've lived for a bit over a year during my radio career, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. It's got stunning scenery, wineries, breweries, beautiful food, and one of the best food markets that I've ever been to in my life, the Central Markets. And in fact, in 2021, it was named the third most livable city in the world. But enough of the plug for South Australian tourism. So what was family life like? It was, I, I guess, like most families, three boys, and um, we got on like um, cats and dogs, always fighting and squabbling. Dad was um, brilliant. You know, he was probably the best role model um, I could have asked for in terms of uh, being consistent, caring, nurturing, and um, you know, I think a man ahead of his time because he was able to and was comfortable showing emotion and um, and his affection. Um, Mum, by contrast, was um, a bit of a troubled soul. She um, um, was the youngest of, I think, six or seven from an Irish Catholic family. Her father was a, a very aggressive and um, abusive um, alcoholic. And um, I think she suffered a little bit of the uh, Irish curse, as they call it. And uh, Mum, too, had... Um, I think a bit of PTSD and definitely had postnatal depression, and um, that set it up for a fairly challenging childhood for me, especially being the eldest. Uh, you know, you're always held out to be the example, uh, if not the, the whipping post. Yeah. Had it not been for dad, uh, I think I would have been pretty traumatised by that. So your dad really was your sort of your, your rock, so to speak. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Henry says his parents were highly focused on making sure he and his siblings got a good education and, in fact, would both work two jobs in order to afford the college fees for the boys. I'd always wanted to be a doctor. It was probably one of my longest-held ambitions or aspirations. 
either that or um, be a pilot. I suppose on reflection, I could have been a flying doctor, but uh, <laughs> um, I was colorblind, so that's oh, that, that, that out. Yeah. Then. And um, my marks weren't quite good enough to get into um, uh, medicine, so um, I settled for dentistry for a couple of years in the hope that I could transfer across uh, at the end of either first or second year, but it was beyond me, to be honest. Um, I wasn't able to get the, the straight distinctions just to be considered. So you ended up um, going down the finance track, am I right in saying that? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. well, initially uh, when I decided that dentistry was not, not for me because I was also at that stage doing um, St John's uh, on the ambulance as a volunteer officer, I had uh, contemplated the idea of uh, maybe uh, becoming a paramedic um, at the very least. So it was starting to come in in the eastern states, mm. still a way off in uh, here in Adelaide. But um, I thought, well, get in on the ground floor. But um, the only way you could sort of get into um, permanent staff at that stage was if someone died, resigned, or got the bullet. And um, it was a long wait. And in the interim, um, I fell into a job in sales. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. Henry would be married very young at the age of just 21 going on to have three children with his first wife and find himself a job in finance, working for the state bank. And it's while working for this company that he would meet the lady who he would eventually fall in love with, Anna Jane. Anna Jane was, uh, she was a lawyer uh, with one of the uh, leading Adelaide firms. Uh, she was a property lawyer. And I was, at that stage, I was working for um, uh, the state bank of SA um, as a financial planner and uh, investment advisor. Her company that she worked for uh, was one of our major clients and um, met her after work just by sheer chance. And um, she was sharp as a whip and um, not shy of banter either. And um, we were both happened to be up at the bar getting a drink and she said, um, and um, what do you do at the bank? I can't help myself sometimes. I'm a bit of a smart ass. And I said, uh, oh, look, I can't tell you that. It's classified. And um, she said, oh, that means you must be the janitor. <laughs> uh, I, I just really wet myself. I thought, that is brilliant. And um, we just sort of like hit off from there. But there was n- nothing sort of like contemplated or planned or anything like that. And, um, you know, for a while, we just, in terms of weeks, uh, we, we just sort of met and talked and that sort of stuff. I hadn't planned uh, to uh, fall in love with her. I hadn't had no sort of ulterior plans or anything at that stage. And mm. it's just something that um, that happened because we just seemed to get along so well and uh, um, we just clicked. Henry would split from his wife and he and Anna Jane began dating and eventually themselves would become engaged. All was well. Henry says they were extremely happy, excited for the future and, in fact, planning their wedding, which was just only six weeks away when tragedy would strike. A tragedy that would alter the course of Henry's life for the next 20 years. It was a Friday night. Um, we, it was our, I guess, custom and practice to uh, just meet up after work and you know, just have a couple of drinks, then go home and either settle down or maybe go out. Um, so we just had a couple of drinks at the at a nearby pub from where I was working. Went home. Anna had made um, arrangements to um, take her dog and uh, her sister-in-law's dog out to the park and just take them all for a run. And um, 
I say back and did some you know, some extra study. When Anna came back, she said, so have you spoken to your mum yet? And um, well, I'd made a firm decision that I wasn't going to be inviting my mum to um, the wedding. Right. Um, she and my father had um, divorced and she made it quite clear that for her, marriage was you know, sort of for life, despite the fact that she and dad had um, broken up and he'd remarried. Right. And um, So she didn't approve of your new, in your new relationship? No, no, she hadn't. And I knew she was always trying to get me to reconcile with my wife, but she had also made you know, my my first marriage you know, to my to my first wife an absolute debacle. Uh, you know, she got drunk and um, made quite a scene and uh, just ruined it. And right. I, was, I was determined not to never let that happen again. And um, I'd been putting it off to uh, sort of break that news to her. And Anna said, well, it's getting close now. You're going to have to uh, go and see her. So I made arrangements to uh, go around, just drop around and see her. And um, Anna was sort of just then going to just unwind. She was going to have a bath. I went off and saw mum, broke the news to her, which she took r- remarkably well, actually, because she said, I thought something like this was going to happen. But you know, she didn't carry on about it, which was a relief. Yeah. Um, and um, then when I came back to... Uh, uh, came back home and going, just going to tell Anna the good news that it was all, all sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, the house was quiet and, and uh, sort of in, in semi-darkness. I thought, well, um, maybe she's just lying down. I went down towards the bedroom and um, saw the bathroom door slightly ajar, um, went in, and that's where I found her slumped unconscious in the bath. She'd not been showing any signs of, you know, being sick or not feeling well mm. through it or no, you know, no, complaints no, of anything at all. at all. No, no. I uh, called out to her. I pulled her out um, of the bath and tried to uh, resuscitate her, um, but I couldn't get um, a good seal because it was sort of just fluid and mucus all around her mouth. Yeah. Um, I rang the triple uh, O for the ambulances and um, continue with the resus until they came. Mm-hmm. And um, they they took over for me. And you know, I'm just standing there you know, praying and hoping that they can get her to uh, uh, come back. Um, and then after about 10, 12 minutes, they just stopped and, and looked at me and said, we're sorry, there's nothing more we can do. She's gone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. So then what, what happens from there? Well, at that stage then I went to the phone and I rang Anna's parents. Yeah. Um, so they had to come around. I think I rang my parents as well. I can't remember how many people I rang or yeah. whether they all rang each other. One thing I know from reading statements and that afterwards is that there was something like 12 or more different police officers had come around. There were two ambulances that had come and, uh, like I said, about 13 or more um, police officers of different ranks. Wow. Didn't really sort of mean anything to me at the night um, other than the fact there's just this constant procession of people. But afterwards it just seemed that, um, and, and from reading the statements, that well, they looked around, there were no signs of, a struggle or a fight or anything like that. And um, they all just put it down to uh, you know, a tragic domestic accident. No no signs of a fight or foul play or anything like that. I'm assuming everyone then leaves. At what point do you realise that, you know, police are now decided that this isn't a tragic accident and they need to be investigating it further? I think it was a few days later because there was a... Um, a policewoman who was uh, attached to the coroner's uh, office and she was tasked with coming out and uh, removing um, any deceased people. But she seemed to take it upon herself to uh, take a set against me. And um, she she first, uh, from, from my reading of the statements, uh, started to raise um, suspicions. And, of course, then when the police start Following that up, um, they realised then that because there were insurance policies uh, on my name, in, on my life rather, and also on um, Anna's, they immediately started to begin to suspect that there might have been a financial motive behind it. Because uh, the forensic pathologist, Manock, who it turns out wasn't even qualified, um, came along and uh, initially he, he said, well, there's... Um, Nothing, nothing really uh, untoward here. Then when he returned to um, Anna's body a few days later, he noticed what he saw or what he claimed were bruises on her body. Then coupled with what the um, policewoman had said, who was also there at the uh, Forensic Science Centre, then sort of took, took a completely different um, filter to what he was seeing and um, started to say that it was foul play.
Dr Colin Manock was the chief forensic pathologist of South Australia. It was his job to determine how people died and, in fact, the consequences of what would come after. Would the police prosecute or was this just a horrible accident? And it would appear, to begin with, that he would decide on the latter. The initial report from them was no foul play. Did they give their their determination of the cause of death at that stage? When it comes to criminal courts, you've got what they call the cause of death and then the manner of death. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, in this case, um, the cause of death was suspected to be drowning, um, but the manner of death is either could be accidental or it could be deliberate in terms of someone or or suicide for that matter. Uh, And so he determined that the cause of death was murder, even though the diagnosis of death by drowning is one of exclusion, not a um, conf- confirmation. It's more, well, nothing else seems to count. Uh, nothing to, else uh, fits, yeah. Count so, for it. Yeah. So therefore, um, it's the only possible explanation that um, is, is left to us. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll take our first look at this Dr Manic, a man who would be the chief forensic pathologist for South Australia, a man with absolutely zero qualifications in which to be the chief forensic pathologist for South Australia. Have I got you there, Doctor? Good day, Jack. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you, sir? Fabulous, thank you. That's good. Good Thank you. you. Dr Robert Moles is an Associate Professor at Flinders University of South Australia and a man who has been involved with Henry's case for over two decades. Not only has he worked tirelessly on Henry's case, but in fact, he's looked into many many cases of serious miscarriage of justice in South Australia, especially when they involved the pathologist who would do the autopsy and subsequent report on the death of Anna Jane, Dr Manock. So Dr Colin Manock um, was, um, he did his medical training at Leeds University um, in England and he finished his training around about 1962. Um, and then he did uh, a couple of years as a house officer. He had five different jobs at that level, um, both six-month posts, um, all six-month posts. Um, and once he's finished, those, none of those were in forensic pathology. They were in just other areas of medicine. Yeah. After that, he got a job as a, an assistant lecturer in forensic pathology, which he did for a couple of years. And then he was promoted to a full-time lecturer in forensic pathology. So he had four years lecturing and teaching in forensic pathology and he said that during the time he was there he did a fair number of autopsies. Now it's very interesting because if you look at his CV that's um, on on my website you'll see that when he applied for jobs he attached a statement recounting his previous experience of course and in the first one he said whilst I was in Leeds I did 800 autopsies. In the next one he said whilst I was in Leeds I did 1,200 autopsies. And in the next one, he said, whilst I was in Leeds, I think it was 1,400 or 1,600. But every time he put in an application to the same employer, oh he always God. moved to the Forensic Science Centre, he increased the number of autopsies he'd done in Leeds. Why would you do that? Well, obviously, because he felt he could bump up his sort of prestige and status by just adding more numbers to it. Now, we've all been guilty of a little white lie when it comes to our resumes. However, a doctor 
inflating the number of autopsies he's supposed to have conducted is more than just a little white lie. It would be this lie that would see him get an extremely high-profile position right here in Australia. He moves into Australia. He gets the job as the chief forensic pathologist in South Australia in 1968. So he hasn't actually worked as a forensic pathologist in his own right prior to that. So his first appointment is chief forensic pathologist. The top dog. And the people in South Australia said, well, he was the best applicant that we had. And although he wasn't really, you know, up to the job, uh, we thought that uh, we just had to go with him because we had to provide service in forensic pathology. Now, my view is that if you look back at that, could it really be so that you're advertising in the British Medical Journal and no doubt in other prestigious journals in Australia and overseas for a person to take the job on as chief forensic pathologist and the only person who makes an application that's really worth considering is a person who's not actually qualified as a forensic pathologist at all. It just seems to me surprising, uh, to say the very least. He gets the job and apparently the understanding is that when he gets the job, um, he would then study and get qualified as a forensic pathologist. The first rather suspicious activity is the fact that in 1971, just three years later, he's coming up to the trial of Fritz van Bielen. Um, That was a major case in South Australia. Fritz van Bielen was said to have attacked, raped and murdered a young girl down on the beach. Obviously a horrendous crime. Um, And uh, Dr Manick is heading to be the chief or one of the prime witnesses at the trial. Um, And at that time, he's then handed a document which states that he's a fellow of the College of Pathology of Australasia. Now, to get your fellowship as the College of Pathology of Australasia, you have to do at least five years of study. You have to do two demanding rounds of examinations. And at each round of examination, approximately 40% of the candidates will fail. So it's, it's, it's not an easy gig. So what the College of Pathology spokesperson said, this was in the ABC Four Corners program. He was asked by Sally Neighbour, why did you hand Dr. Manick a certificate saying he was a fellow of the College of Pathology um, in 1971? And Dr. Whedon said, ah, well, that's because if you arrive from England with qualifications, then we give you the Australian qualification to match it. And Sally Neighbour said, of course, but he hasn't got any English qualifications. And so why did he get this? And Dr. Whedon said, "Uh, we would have given it to him because of the seniority of the position that he held, which really makes no sense from any point of view that I can think of. Crazy. Uh, Just because of the job he had, men said, oh, well, he's in that job, so let's just give him the qualification. Like That absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. No sense at all. Now, the difficulty is that when you go to court as a so-called expert witness, the test for going to court is not, do you have a piece of paper on hand stating that you're this or that or something else? The test is, have you, by study or training, acquired specialised knowledge on the issue that's to be addressed? Normally, you see, a certificate saying you're a fellow of the College of Pathology would indicate that you have done the five years of training, two arduous rounds of examinations and so on. So what we face now is that in 1971, he's given a certificate um, stating he's a fellow, and after that, he's turning up in court and to the Van Bielen trial, one of the biggest and most important trials of the day, simply stating he's a fellow of the College of Pathology, giving evidence, 
So a man who has absolutely no qualifications in which to conduct autopsies is now the chief forensic pathologist of South Australia. And what's even more shocking is in 1975, almost two decades before he would be conducting the autopsy in Henry's case, it was actually called out publicly by his own employer and by another doctor that Manic was completely unqualified to be conducting autopsies. The next major occasion that we have is in 1975, when it appears that the Forensic Science Centre had become quite disturbed about Dr Manock's lack of progress with his studies, and so they advertise for a senior director of forensic pathology. It's advertised in the British Medical Journal again, and at that time, Manock takes them by surprise, and so what he does is to commence civil proceedings against his employer, Forensic Science Centre, and also the state of South Australia is joined as a party to the action. Now, that's really important because it now means the state of South Australia, although it's responsible for the Forensic Science Centre, is specifically named as a party to the action that Dr Manick is bringing. They can't deny any knowledge that they have that's disclosed during those proceedings, you see. So during the course of the civil proceedings, where Dr Manock says, if you appoint somebody who's a senior director of forensic pathology, that would be an appointment above me, and that you can't do that because I've been appointed to be head of department. So if you appoint somebody who appears to be head of, head of me, um, then that would mean that I've been demoted, um, and that would amount to a constructive dismissal of me from my post as head of department. The litigation went on for six years, so it was a serious matter. It wow. wasn't just, a, I'm a bit annoyed, and, and sending a, a, a rude letter or something. This is litigation for six years. During the course of that, in, in about 1975, Dr Bonin, who is then the head of the Forensic Science Centre, states in his sworn evidence, and I've got copies of the transcript of this on my Dr Manick webpage, in which he says, the problem we have with Dr Manock is that he's not qualified to certify cause of death. And then he adds a few paragraphs later, and the other problem we have with him is that he has no expert qualifications. The extent of the damage that would be left in the wake of Dr Colin Manick is nothing short of horrific. In fact, to give you an idea of just how bad it is, Dr Robert Moles and I spoke for almost three hours about it. It is a conversation that I will release soon as a bonus episode. So did you start getting a bit concerned when they started coming around asking more questions? Like, why are we asking me all these questions when, you know, this was an accident or were you just going along with it? um, As far as I was concerned, I knew I had done nothing. There was no signs that the house had been broken into. There were no other... Um, outward signs on, on Anna at all that she'd been attacked or anything like that. I assume the police were just following up their um, their normal lines of inquiry or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, when there's an unexplained death, obviously they're going to have to go to extra lengths. And given the fact that Anna was a lawyer, um, uh, her family were you know, sort of well-to-do and uh, well-connected, those sort of factors will always lead to um, police... You know, sort of doing a more thorough job of inquiring than uh, you know, sort of maybe otherwise. What was your relationship like with Anna's family? It was a bit strained. Um, her mother, um, I didn't um, particularly like. I, I found her domineering and controlling, not just of 
um, in general, but most of the other members of her family. Um, Anna, she was very independent and strong-willed um, spirit, and you know, she wouldn't sort of be buckled by her mum. And of course, I took my lead from her. Yeah, and of course, that didn't endear me to um, to Joe, her mother. The father, um, Kevin, I thought he and I got along reasonably well. Her brother, well, I think he'd been sort of like beaten down a fair bit by um, maybe the mother, but he because he just seemed to be very quiet and removed. So uh, you couldn't really get to, to know that. But it turned out later that um, um, I wasn't that, that well liked, I think primarily because I wasn't a lawyer or a doctor. Right. Um, I'd been married before and I had children. So you add all those factors up, um, not exactly um, catch of the day. In their eyes, at least. No, exactly. Did you have an attorney at all as well when you were being spoken to these first well, few to start times? with, um, I didn't believe I needed one. No, um, I hear that a lot. And at that point, I thought, well, the only people who you know, rush to get um, a lawyer are those who've got you know, uh, something to um, to defend or something to hide. Yeah. And uh, you know, that just wasn't the case. I had nothing to, um, to justify or to defend, uh, in my view, and... Uh, um, so even though friends were um, saying, you really should get some representation here, it took me quite a while to uh, to bow to that because I just didn't think it was necessary. It's funny, like, I mean, doing the, what I do now is that's the one common theme throughout all of the people I speak to who have been wrongfully incarcerated and, and fighting wrongful convictions is their initial interviews have all started the same. No legal representation whatsoever because, as you said, I wasn't guilty, nothing to hide. I don't need an attorney. Yeah. I'll just tell them what happened and, you know, it'll mm. all work itself yeah. out because they'll see that I had nothing to do with this and, and we'll move on with our lives. When I did uh, a strong urging from a friend at work, uh, go and see a lawyer, you normally see a solicitor first and then they retain or engage um, the barrister. I guess because of the nature of uh, my work, I had uh, some barristers as uh, commercial barristers as uh, clients and they referred me on to a criminal barrister who then um, arranged for a solicitor, instructing solicitor. But when I went around, first of all, to um, uh, the barrister's chambers, there was another one, another guy there who was actually ex-drug squad. And um, the thing he impressed upon me was that, um, and this was after I'd already made a number of statements to the police, he said, look, um, the police are not your friends. doesn't matter what they say, how they come across, nine times out of ten, they're just looking to get uh, anything that will incriminate you and they just ignore or overlook anything that's, um, what they call it, exculpatory, you know, that sort of is going to support your innocence. That's not what they're interested in. And uh, from that point on, um, I, I took Ian Sampson's um, advice. He said, look, you say nothing to them ever. Um, because whatever you say will be taken down and either twisted or um, used to cement or reinforce their view. Interviews with police would span over a few weeks at his home and down at the station, one of which would last for several hours. One was at the police station where they said, Look, come down, we've just got a couple of, a couple of things to, um, to ask you to, and clear up, won't take very long. And this was the day that um, I'd gone to pick out the clothes that Anna was, was going to be buried in, and, that, and it turned out to be four and a half hours. It was a long, long uh, session. And um, But again, 
I was totally frank and forthcoming. To me, there was nothing to hide. And so that was that one. And I think a few others were either at my home, um, probably a two or three at the home. But by then, um, my lawyer had sort of been engaged and um, yeah. he said, look, no more, um, no, more talk. no more talking to them unless um, myself or a uh, solicitor are there. So that that one that went out for over four hours, so that was that all in one 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 session. That was a, yep. Yep. Did you feel like you were being interrogated? Did it feel like an interrogation or no? Not at that stage. Um, that was very early, very early in the piece. Um, yeah, it just seemed incredibly tedious. And guy here was just hunting and pecking uh, as he was trying to type it all out. He'd ask the questions and then sort of type it in and then re-ask the question and. And modified again, and uh, it was just went on and on and on. Arduous. yeah, nothing menacing or intimidating or anything like that, or or even suggesting that uh, um, anything um, other than what I believed had happened, what had happened. So now that Henry had sought legal advice and had engaged a lawyer, they would take control of the situation, and again advised Henry that he should be giving the police as little as possible and to certainly under no circumstances speak to police without their presence. This advice of not giving the police any assistance moving forward would, it seems, cause the police to escalate things when they asked for Henry to submit to a medical examination. How did you find out that you were going to be charged with, with this as, a, as, a, as murder? I guess they know from experience. They, they had also uh, asked my lawyer to uh, make me available for... You know, a medical examination to see if I had any scratches or cuts or bruises or anything like that. And I said, well, I don't have any problem with that. I'm more than happy to. Um, but Michael David said, no, nope, give them nothing. And uh, at that stage, they must have intimated to him that we would have liked him to come in uh, and make himself available for that, which which I was prepared to. And uh, they said, well, you know, um, we're not happy with the way this is going. Um, given that the pathologist had changed his view and had, was now saying that it was a, a wrongful wrongful death, a murder. They decided that um, they were going to up the ante and uh, based on, I guess, their experience, they knew it was arrest was going to be imminent and um, he said, from experience, um, they'll try and do it at the time that's going to cause you the most inconvenience. It'll be on a weekend or, or at night. Obviously, that means then that you're, you're in the cells at least for two or three nights before you can get get into court and uh, make bail. What's what's that like? Hearing that from from your legal team saying that that they feel an arrest is imminent and it's it's going to be for murder and that that must be an extremely stressful and horrendous thing to be oh, told. You can't believe it, uh, Jack. Um, you think is this a dream? Is this really happening? It's it's just surreal. You're already feeling disconnected to the world and then just another level seems to be uh, coming your way you have one minute remaining and that's all we have time for but coming up in our next episode henry is officially arrested and charged for the murder of his fiance and as his lawyers had predicted it happened at not only an inconvenient time but also it would appear a time that would create the most embarrassment for not only henry but also his family I had noticed um, a couple of cars following me. Um, 
I don't know whether they did it obviously to uh, see if they could get me to uh, do a run or whatever yeah. or just keeping a clumsy close eye on me. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.